You're listening to Pair of Programmers. I'm Christopher Wolf, And I'm John Fisher. In the show, we explore different topics that software developers encounter in their careers. The format of the show is that one of us researches a topic, and the other reacts with insights from their experience. Tweet us at Podcast to send us topics you'd like to hear discussed. Today's episode is about dependency hell. John's done the research this week, and I'll react with my experience. All right, so this so dependency hell is the problem that developers will get into where their projects require uh, multiple dependencies of of different libraries, and those libraries themselves can oftentimes have other dependencies. Now, if it's only uh, like a single dependency and that's where it stops, that's not a problem. You can have as many dependencies as you want. You know, you have to install them every time and maybe it takes up some space and there are some issues there. But there's no issue about which version of which dependency you're going to have. They're just hard-coded in a configuration file and that's what you get. But when dependencies have dependencies themselves, um, then you can get what I never heard the term for this before, but it's called uh, diamond dependency, where you have an application, let's just call it A, and it has dependencies B and C, and then B and C both have a dependency on uh, library D. Say both B and C require version one of library D, but then library D does development and they come out with a version two and uh, dependency C says, ah, you know, library D came out with this new release, I am going to use it. And so now your application is dependent on B, which requires version one of library D, but it's also dependent on C, which requires version two of library D. And so now the question is, if you're running your application A, which version of D do you pull in? Version 1 or 2? Um, and so that's the basis of dependency hell. And you can have this in really any project. The, the two that um, I will probably talk about most because I've had the most experience with them are um, NPM configurations for uh, UI applications uh, like JavaScript, HTML, front-end applications and uh, Java applications. I'm gonna give a few recommendations as we go through this. One of the recommendations is to use a package manager that will definitely help you resolve um, dependencies and, and figure out which which dependency you should be using to get automatic updates and things like that. For NPM, stands for Node Package Manager. No, I don't really know where I was going with that. What was I talking about, Chris? <laughs> no worries. Um, I think you, so you were talking about dependency hell and how eventually you can get into a conflict where, oh, right. you know, one of... Yeah, I, I just wanted to bring up the two different um, versions of package management libraries um, that I'm going to be talking about. So for the UI, um, NPM is kind of the standard default. There's also Yarn, uh, which I think does something similar. I don't have a whole lot of experience with that. And then on the Java service side, a lot of applications these days are set up using a tool called Maven. Um, and both 
both of these are let you do dependency management. Um, mm-hmm. So I can um, yep. I can also speak to some uh, Python method, you know, ways that you would manage dependencies. Uh, so in Python, you would generally use pip, and you can similar to Node where uh, where you have package.json listing out your dependencies. In Python, you would use pip, and you would use requirements.txt to list out your dependencies. I can try to, whatever research you found, I can try to sprinkle in some Python yeah. um, goodness on top of it. Yeah. I think I knew that at one point with Python, but um, those days are long gone. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully they'll come back sometime soon. Okay, so let me go through like a basic history of dependency how, um, and then I'll go through um, kind of like my recommendations. Sounds good. Oh, first I should men- mention that that dependency how where the application A requires B, which what requires D, um, that is called transitive dependency. I've uh, not heard that term before, but that's what it's called. So you can, like, if you're familiar with Eclipse for your uh, Java projects, um, you can see, like, a dependency hierarchy. That dependency hierarchy will show you the the transitive dependencies. Uh, And that diamond dependency um, is why something called SEMVER, SEMVER is very important. It stands for semantic versioning. And we'll go into the details in a minute here about kind of like what the what the syntax of Simfer is. But just to go bit some some very rudimentary history here, um, the some of the first applications um, or programming languages didn't actually have any um, concept of dependencies. So the one the one programming language um, that that stood out as like a, this is one of the first languages, and um, when it was discussing dependencies was um, Basic. I think that's a Microsoft product. I'm not, programming language. I'm not entirely sure. Um, so, I'll, Chris, if you um, can fill in anything there, have you ever used Basic or know anything about it? No, no, I don't know anything about Basic. Yeah. Before my time. <laughs> uh, yeah, other than the fact that it's old, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but um, BASIC apparently did not have any dependencies. Um, so it, was, it <laughs> provided a core library for you to use. And um, other than that, you just wrote everything yourself. I see. So that was it. That was like it. You couldn't install, install other useful things you found. So you just got what you got. Yep. And what I was... I don't... This is kind of hard to believe, but what I was reading um, said that you couldn't even like import dependencies that you yourself write. So there was no sense of like oh, a library dear. in any sense. Yeah, right. Okay, so like not only did you not have that ability to like get libraries, but could you even write like you know your own utility file with functions in it? Because you couldn't import. You wouldn't be able to have imported that own that utility file. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Damn. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I imagine like you have to be able to write functions and stuff. That would, that would seem crazy, but yeah. 
but like not spread them spread them across your files right right potentially yeah Yeah. Um, (laughs) okay so before i go under recommendations i want to talk a little bit about semver i think it's a little there's an official like semver syntax and so i got most of my um, research from that um, but there's also like some differences between programming languages and like how they refer to the different parts of it. So, and you'll you'll see what I mean in a minute here. So, any version of a dependency should be broken down into at least three parts. Those are major, minor, and patch. Uh, the patch is occasionally called micro, um, depending on who you ask or who you talk to. Uh, I think patch is much more common. That's what I've heard used before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah. So the the major version, you only want to increment that um, if it's a breaking change. So if you're doing small bug fixes and stuff like that or adding minor functionality, you wouldn't increment the major version. But if you introduce a breaking change, you have to increment the major version. After major, there's a dot, and then there's minor, and then a dot, and then patch, um, and then there's some stuff after patch occasionally, but the each of these major, minor, and patches are, are separated by a dot. Um, so in minor, um, that if you want to increment that, you can... You will increment that for anything that's backwards compatible, but still like a large number of changes or um, not major in the sense that I just used it, but major in the sense of scale and maybe complexity or amount of rework, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe like a new fe- new feature? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then uh, patch is exclusively for bug fixes. So you're not releasing any new features here. You're, you better not be introducing any breaking changes. Um, it's just for like small bug fixes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then occasionally there is some uh, stuff after patch. It's usually separated by a hyphen. And the syntax for this I didn't write down, but but it's often something like the build number. Um, so like each build that you do, you would increment this by one. Um, can, gotcha. I think, occasionally have like a, a date timestamp in it and that sort of thing. Makes sense. What about like performance improvements? Would you consider those patches or like minor improvements? Oh, that's a good question. I didn't see any mention of that while I was doing the research, but I, I think that's a minor change. I think that would qualify as a minor change. Makes sense. Yeah, like, I had never heard it explained, you know, with all those rules. So I always struggled, like, with minor versus patch. But I kind of like the rule that, like, patch should just be exclusively bug fixes. That's good. Yeah. You're the guy that just increments the, the minor version every time, right? You're like, oh, yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> pick the number in the middle. Right. That's right. <laughs> that's better than just... Um, Incrementing the patch version, I guess. Yeah. Right? <laughs> or, like, uh, not incrementing anything at all. <laughs> yeah, everything's version one. Yeah, right. 
Which actually, so my my coworker tried to call me out on this recently because my project was um, it was still like version zero something, mm-hmm. which actually version zero in some ver means something kind of separate. But the thing is, he was giving me a hard time out about about it, and I told him that he was uh, stupid for lack of a better word <laughs> because it wasn't. It's a it was a standalone application uh-huh. it like it wasn't meant to be bundled up and like it wasn't a library it was an application itself mm-hmm. so there shouldn't be anybody dependent on it mm-hmm. and, and you know our build process doesn't really allow for like automatic incrementing of of these version numbers and everything mm-hmm. i was like like what what is the point of doing that for something that's not going to be consumed mm-hmm. Um, so, so the major point of Semver is that it allows you to nicely resolve these dependency health situations. Makes sense, or at least be able to identify them, like, you know, knowing that dependency D had a major change, you know, from version yeah. 1 to version 2, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. And I guess if you're, yeah, I, I suppose it, it can still be helpful if you're just trying to like look through the release notes of an application and to see when things change. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it was worth it, so I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now I want to talk a little bit about the different syntaxes that can be used within the package management utilities. So for the UI tool NPM node package manager, there are two major ways that give you flexibility in defining what you want to be your dependency. So, you know, it's one thing to say, going back to my app with the B and C dependencies, if application B would have said, give me version one, but let me go up to version five, mm-hmm. then that allows B to be more flexible so that when C requires version 2 of library D, B now has this range of dependencies that it can take on. Um, and since version 2 is within that range, B doesn't have a problem. So it says, yeah, like that, I can work with that. Um, and why that's okay um, is because the version that we're talking about, let's say it's a patch version, right? So there shouldn't be any breaking changes for dependency B. It's library, the the library D is declaring, I have this next patch version that regardless of what you're using now, as long as the minor or major versions aren't changing, there's no issue. You can, you can trust that what I'm giving you as the updated patch version won't affect your performance, it won't affect anything um, that's going to break you. So yeah, take it on. And then uh, the application A can do an update on both B and C, and those will pull in the newer version of D, since C requires it. Makes sense. Um, Okay, so going back to NPM, and we'll we'll look at Maven in a second, because it does something similar. You can use tildes or carrots, Um, and a tilde is put in front of the simver numbering system in your what's it it's in your package.json case for npm which is your basically your configuration for what dependencies your project needs 
and the tilde means that any patch version within the within the listed minor fix is okay. So let's say you have your project requires version 1.2.3 um, of some library. If you put a tilde in that, then your project um, needs version 1.2.3, but it can also go up to 1.2.4 or 1.2.9, right? Or any additional pre-release qualifiers after the patch. What it can't do is go up to 1.3 instead of 1.2, right? That the major version and the minor version are locked in. Gotcha. So that's that's the tilde, um, and now the caret is a little less strict, um, and that says that any minor version within the major version is okay. So in the case that I just gave, where it was 1.2.3, if you have a caret in front of that, now you can go 1.2.8, or you can do 1.4.6, mm-hmm. but what you can't do is 2.1. anything. So 2.x is is out of the available range. Makes sense. So the version that ends up in package.json is what it was whenever you installed it, but then you're using these shorthands to say, you know, I can take a newer patch versions or I can take newer minor versions. Yep, yep. And um, I think as of 2014, they switched the default prefix, tilde or caret, they switched it um, to being a caret. Oh, okay. So now it's, you know, less restrictive. Gotcha. Nice. Um, And so sort of to summarize that along with your earlier points, you know, you're sort of trusting that that library maintainer is following semantic version properly because you are putting some trust into them that like, you know, that they're not going to introduce breaking changes on you. Yep. Yep. For sure. There's something similar followed, um, within Maven. They have a concept of soft and hard versions. So a soft version is, I think the default, um, which just means that like it can be overridden by a, don't, uh, yeah, don't quote me on this. I know I should have done the research, but I didn't know. That's okay. Um, I'm not sure if it's the default or not. Oh, no worries. Not sure if it's the default or not, but soft basically means that um, like this version that I have listed can be overridden if another library requires it, requires it to be. Gotcha. That's in contrast to hard versions, which are surrounded in square brackets. So if you go back to your um, like algebra days when we were talking about ranges, if you had something that was inclusive, I forget how this all worked, but basically the, the square brackets meant a hard stop. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I think, where that syntax come from. If you leave it as a regular parentheses with like a curved side, um, that means that it's open on that side. So you can go up to. Oh, you know, okay. It basically, treat it as soft in that case. Yeah. Okay. And so. That's cool. So one one side, um, the left side means like versions lower than, and the right side of the number means versions higher than. So you can have a uh, a soft version requirement 
for lower numbers and a hard version requirement on the top number. So it's like anything lower than um, 2.9.9 is, is okay, um, which just gives you the full range of everything up to 3, but not including 3. There's a hard stop at 2.9.9. Gotcha. That's cool. Python has a similar concept. Uh, so what you would do is you would say what your dependency is, um, and then you would use kind of like equality syntax or greater than or equal to syntax. So you could say, um, you know, your dependency, and then a double equals, and then 2.1.2. And so that would mean you mm -hmm. would always get that version no matter what. You can then say like greater than or equal to 2.1.2 so that that literally opens you up to everything. So you could get, you could still keep going up to version three and version four, but 2.1.2 would be your floor. You can mix and match. So that's how you would sort of prevent major versions. You would say greater than or equal to 2.1, less than or less than three. And that would keep you kind of below that major version upgrade yep. um so yeah i think i think that's all pretty universal because dependency hell is such a universal problem that i think a lot of these um systems have ways of managing versions like yep. that yep yeah i should also say that with maven you can list um ranges so you can say like 1.0.0 hyphen 1.3.0 and that'll keep you within 1 to 1.3 gotcha Nice. So the recommendations that I have for you, uh -huh. as a metaphor, I'll start with something that's not dependency hell related. Um, one of my um, teammates recommended to me, he saw how I was coding. I tend to be very like organized. I'm, my brain is not organized, but I like my code to be organized. <laughs> and... You know, I was like, oh, let's, you know, put everything in its own folder. And I can have, like, folders within folders. Um, and this way, everything has, like, its own dedicated folder. And, like, I know what everything is for. But this resulted in me having, like, five levels deep worth of folders to drill into before you actually got to the code. And he was like, nah, dude, like, don't do that. Just put everything next to each other and have, like, a good naming convention so that the names will show up next to each other and, and it's easy to find and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I don't actually need all these folders. So my recommendation is to treat dependency hell that same way. You don't want like dependencies within dependencies within dependencies because then you're going to get into this, the, those transitive dependencies are eventually going to trip you up. And, and it also that requires you to have more libraries since it kind of it doesn't double every time, but like, you know, it's not a linear number of dependencies that you're pulling in when you get into that kind of stuff. Each, each dependency will have its own multitude of dependencies. So you're kind of um, snowballing really quick there. So keep your, keep your number of dependencies small and, try to include dependencies that are more standalone, that aren't requiring a bunch of crazy different libraries themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually um, something I see a lot with front-end libraries. I think since this problem has become more and more prevalent is that they'll actually have like a promo that says, like, I have no dependencies. Like if you go to yep. some 
library's website. They're very proud of the fact that they have no dependencies. So yep. yeah, I think that's good advice. Yep, yep. And the so the one exception to this that I was kind of hoping I would find um, this listed as an exception. Maybe it's a bit of observer's bias, like I was looking for it, and so therefore I found it. But I think this would hold up as like good recommendation or a good caveat to that rule is that framework libraries are shouldn't be held to that same standard because frameworks are oftentimes released together. So like if you get um, version three of some framework, um, but that framework has a bunch of different like bits and pieces to it that are all kind of like modularized and released separately and you can include some of them, but you know some of them are in core included in like the the core uh, of the framework. But then you can like add on some additional ones. I think it's okay for frameworks to you know have have some dependencies and and to not you know have the requirement to ah, I did everything on my own. Um, right. Yeah. Just because that's like the base of your application. Usually those come from trusted sources that are, you know, testing heavily, making sure they're compliant with the Semver rules, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, I think that frameworks just have so much to do that it's okay for them to lean on others and bring in some extra dependencies to overcome everything else that they have to do. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's that's pretty much all I found out while... Um, while I was looking into this, did you, do you have anything you wanted to add on? Yeah, sure. Um, definitely, uh, the semantic versioning is a great point to explain alongside this because, you know, like you said, you're trusting that those people do follow Semver correctly and sometimes they don't. And that's, I've seen several threads on GitHub issues that are like, you know, you introduced this feature, you should have bumped the major version, and people are like, I'm sorry. Mm. Um, so that's definitely a very important point. Um, but yeah, I'd also um, be interested in talking through just how the internals of some of these work. So like I know, no, so uh, you mentioned, you know, earlier your example was package D. So you have these direct dependencies on B and C, and they each have conflicting versions of package D that they want and there's no reconciliation possible. So like one wants specifically version one and the other wants specifically version two. And so how do you address that? Um, I think, and this is what I believe is accurate, but listeners at home, you should probably confirm this before you just believe me. Um, I think that node will actually keep basically download both versions. And so the one that wanted version one will actually get version one. And the one that wanted version two will actually get version two. Like it, at some point, yes, the, it yep. stores both of them. And so each can be ha happy with whatever version it wants. But if it, it is possible to reconcile, then it will just reconcile. And then I think uh, you had brought up Yarn. We use Yarn at work and that was set up by someone so I don't know exactly how it works, but I think the point there is with Yarn, you can do offline caching. And so that way you can be sure that 
everybody's getting kind of like the same copy of the dependencies. Um, you know, if you like clone a repo, you'll get the same exact version as what was kept in the cache. Yeah. Something like that. So, and NPM even does that now too. I don't know when this was introduced. I think it was a little while ago actually, but a lot of times you'll see as you're doing your local development, you'll see a package dash lock dot JSON show up. And there the tildes and the carrots are taken out. And so this file is meant to say, okay, we know you have your package JSON with these range of dependencies based on the tildes and carrots, but when you run npm install and it goes and um, node runs through that or npm um, runs through the package.json file, it's pulling the resolve dependencies. And so like when it when it does that, it knows which version it got. Um, and so the package lock.json file is the kind of like the snapshot view of what's actually used in your application. Gotcha. That's good to know. Yeah, I think uh, NPM has had a storied history of dependency management. So it's good, yeah, that they're kind of bringing all these features in to keep it well-maintained. I guess uh, the one last point, and this I get in trouble for at work pretty frequently, is actually what you were saying there with the package lock.json. So pinning the versions of your dependencies down, that can be really important once you get into your application gets into a build system, because if you sort of have these open-ended version ranges, then you're not going to necessarily have reproducible builds. Uh, and so what that means is like, if, if you've got Jenkins or whatever build system set up, if I click build now today, and I click build now a week from now, if I haven't changed anything in the code, then it's not unreasonable to assume that you should get the exact same result. But if you have these version ranges, that's like, oh, can take up to one point, anywhere between 1.0 and 1.3, then if an actual update comes out within that week, you're not going to get the same build um, result. So that's something that, you know, your DevOps department and systems departments really care about is making sure that the results are reproducible. And I think that's, this is where I get in trouble because I actually, I still don't actually do it because the flip side of that is if you keep your dependencies locked down, you're not getting updates. And so you're not getting security updates to some of your right. critical libraries. Well, and this is, this is, this brings up a great point because this is where if you're a library developer um, and you're not using Semver properly, or if you're introducing breaking changes um, when the Semver for that doesn't match, so you just increment the patch number and you introduce a breaking change, you're causing grief for my friend Chris here. <laughs> because because he, he thinks that there's no breaking changes. And of course, you know, we should be testing every time we come up with a new build. But, you know, we're... we're in, a, in some ways, developers need to trust the library developers. Uh, the application developers need to trust the library developers because, yeah, like we're, we're relying on you for, for a lot of things. So um, make sure you follow your Semver rules. Yeah, absolutely. Please do. <laughs> um, that's a good point to the testing because I was going to ask, you know, like how, 
how you handle that sort of like give and take of, well, I want to keep my packages up to date to get those security updates, but obviously it, it is reasonable to want reproducible builds. Um, so how do you, how do you manage that? Do you just have like every three months, do you look at your dependencies and see, oh, this one's out of date, but it's not too out of date. So it's okay. Or this one's out of date, but it's really out of date. So let's look into updating that one. How do you guys handle that? Um, so node now, um, maybe it's, it may just be the more recent versions of node, uh, or I'm sorry, the more recent versions of NPM, but NPM will actually warn you anytime your libraries have fallen out of sync such that there's like a known security vulnerability with those old versions. Um, so like if you run NPM, you just check out the project and you run NPM install, it'll say, you know, you have four libraries that have security vulnerabilities, like run, and it's something like, I think it's like NPM run audit or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it runs an audit report of security vulnerabilities. We also have a, you know, IT application security team at work that does scans like these on the, like, released code for, like, it, it checks the, the libraries of the, the, yeah, the versions of the libraries that we're dependent on, and then, like, it sees if there's any um, postings on, like, the, the open security forums for known vulnerabilities. So we got one of those um, probably about six months ago as a warning from our security team saying like, hey, one of your libraries is is not secure, so make sure you update it. Nice. And we updated it. So, yeah. That's cool. Sounds yeah. like a good system. Yeah, make, make other people do the work. It's <laughs> 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 basically my answer. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it's always good to have, for security especially, to have more eyes on it than not. So, yeah. How do you how do you deal with that? Uh, so, like I said, I s- sometimes will still just kind of leave my requirements, spe- my dependencies specified in o- an open-ended way. And, you know, every three months or so, yeah, build will fail. Um, and then I'll have to look at it and it'll basically be because some version, some update came out that wasn't compatible with some other parts of my code. Um, but I think, uh, that's sort of, yeah, where the testing comes into play too. You know, I think for every build, you should obviously have your tests running to discover when things you thought would work a certain way aren't working when the tests actually run. Um, so yeah, I think robust testing is another way to approach it. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't like to necessarily lock it down too much because you know, I've just seen projects throughout my career as a developer where the dependencies just stagnate and they just stay on that version and people don't take the time to look into upgrading. I've seen that more often and been concerned about that than the other way around where my dependencies are specified with version ranges and every once in a while I'll have to troubleshoot some sort yep. of conflict. I'd rather do that than use jQuery 1.6, which I had to do once. <laughs> um, cool. And then I think um, the other, the only other thing I could possibly add to this conversation is um, sort of internally how, well, sorry, we talked about how NPM sort of resolves those conflicts that can't 
actually be resolved. And so it sort of downloads both at once and tries to please everybody. So I'm pretty sure with Node, when you do your NPM install, before it actually downloads anything, it will like look at your package.json and look at all of your dependencies package.json's until it finds all of the different would-be installations. Um, and again, this might be, this is not something I verified. So if you're listening at home, you probably want to double check this before you just believe it outright. Uh, but I think that node will basically look at the dependency graph all together at once and then do that version checking to try to find the conflicts and then do the installations. And the reason why I bring this up is uh, for Python, it works differently. So Python will actually install each of the requirements as soon as it hits them without considering like whether future conflicts are going to happen when it, you know, reaches mm, things in yeah. the future. And so uh, a specific example that I ran into was trying to install two libraries. Uh, one's called NumPy and one's called Pandas. Um, so NumPy is like a number crunching, like big number crunching library that scientists often use, you know, when they have a lot of uh, data to process and they want to process it faster than Python can do on its own. Um, and then Pandas is a data analysis library on top of that. So that's used by like data scientists and financial analysts and that sort of thing. So NumPy for number crunching and pandas for, you know, anal analyzing. So uh, NumPy is a dependency of pandas. And so what I was running into was if I tried to install pandas first, um, based on what pandas requirements.txt says uh, as its dependency version for NumPy, it was trying to basically install the bleeding edge latest version of NumPy. Mm -hmm. And so pip, the package manager, would install that version of NumPy first because that's the one it encountered first. And then it would keep going until it finally got to my request for NumPy. And then it would try to install a conflicting version and eventually basically not the end result was not something that was kind of like reconciled. And so uh, I would get like build failures and things like that. What I had to do was install, I had to ensure that NumPy would be installed first. And so in with pip, the order of your requirements.txt doesn't actually matter. Like it's not gonna necessarily obey the order that you put things in. So then I had to write a little bash script to only install one of my requirements one at a time. So, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, uh, these things can definitely, the, the way that the package manager rectifies things or doesn't can have an impact on your sort of day-to-day -day developer life. Yeah. Wow. That's a, I feel like someone should tell, uh, the Python community. <laughs> they should, yeah. Well, I think uh, I actually found a GitHub issue. Someone had reported the same. Oh, okay. They were basically like, you know, that's actually Pandas' fault. Like, Pandas should be ah, know, specifying okay. the range 
right. of NumPy that it depends on instead of leaving it open-ended. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is my build just failed. <laughs> yeah, so, right. Yeah. Fun times. I feel like I used to struggle with it a lot more with Node, and now I don't because it's over the years they've just kind of made all of these different improvements to how they internally help you manage your dependencies. That yeah, yeah. the The major issues I've run into in the past have all actually haven't been UI issues. They've been on the service layer with Java, and that's because. Mm-hmm. Um, we were doing something uh, like keeping just like very simple what we call commons libraries that were wrappers around other classes and other packages and stuff from another dependency and those dependencies just like wrapped another one and so it's it was this idea of deeply nested dependencies that you don't need um, and so at least the the organization that I've worked with has gotten a lot better about flattening out that dependency list and and really like keeping it bare bones and and I guess helpful. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, instead of just like wrappers around wrappers around wrappers. Yeah, I think that's a good attitude. I think that like keeping it flat and not, but also not like even for the ones that you do still pick not like getting locked into them, like not mm-hmm. tying yourself so closely to their implementation that you can't unwind right. it later. Cool. Um, well, that's, that's all I had. Our next episode is going to be about software testing. Um, and so we'll talk about QA processes, unit tests, functional tests, integration tests, uh, you name it, anything that can help you ensure your software is a high quality. We'll talk about it in our next episode. Lovely. Looking forward to it.